brought to you by The Corker Co. here to unveil the stories behind remarkable people. My name is Matt Corker and I'm joined today in the office with Jake Sticka, the Executive Director of Next Gen Men. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So tell me, I obviously know a little bit about Next Gen Men being on the board, um, but tell our listeners what Next Gen Men is. Yeah, so Next Gen Men's a nonprofit that builds better men through peer engagement, education, and empowerment with the aims of improving men's health and well-being, uh, reducing all forms of violence, and promoting gender equity. And that's a very long thing. So what does that mean tactically? You know, I wish there was a short answer for that. Essentially, we are undoing uh, centuries of social norms that make men the way that they are today. And... Um, some of the questions around, you know, Me Too and Time's Up, uh, some of the pressing issues that we face today are a product of those social norms. And so a big criticism that I, I feel like you may hear a lot of is like, well, you're a white man. What's your role in these movements? Not only am I a white man, I'm a cisgendered heterosexual white man, so I have a shit ton of privilege. And... Um, I think that my role in these types of conversations is to uh, engage others with similar amounts of privilege in these conversations. Um, You know, when we talk about uh, diversity and inclusion, oftentimes uh, there's this kind of othering sentiment. That's for those people, right? But diversity is, is everyone. I'm included in diversity. I'm part of the calculation, right? So I want to have a voice in that conversation and, and include others in those conversations. And specifically, one of the things that I loved uh, hearing you say is that you want to make sure that you're in the same conversation with other people with the same privilege. So it's like a white male talking to a white male about their role. Absolutely. I mean, Um, acknowledging kind of where I come into this uh, and the work that I do, I know that I should be creating more space for others. But I know that my message, it could be the exact same message that someone else carries um, that isn't, you know, a six foot eight white guy and it doesn't land the same way. So if I can deliver that message and at least get the person to hear it, maybe that second follow-up conversation registers differently. Mm. And so what started Next Gen Men? When you were like, you know what, it's time that we come together, it's you and two other co-founders um, that all that started it. So tell me the, the founder story. Yeah, so uh, it's actually good timing for that, that question too, is we read an article by an author named uh, Rachel Giza in uh, The Walrus called The Talk. And it was about a sexual health program for junior high aged men. And uh, for me, I thought, you know, going, uh, growing up in Catholic school where sex ed is don't do it. And then growing up in a traditional East European family where we don't really talk about much, I thought to myself, well, if I had something like this when I was a kid, um, I'd probably be better off as an adult. But the reason that I say the timing is really good is Rachel Giza actually just released a new book called Boys, What It Means to Become a Man. And Next Gen Men is actually prominently featured in that book. No way. 
Okay, so we'll provide a link to the book down below and let everyone have, an, have access to it. Um, and so what specifically about the article were you like touched by or moved by that allowed you to say, okay, it's time to be involved in this program or be involved in this conversation? Yeah, well, I wasn't far removed from university and obviously in universities when you have a lot of your first kind of like sexual and relational experiences and, you know, thinking what a knucklehead I was going through those experiences. Um, so the program really resonated with me. But then um, in reaching out to uh, my best friend, who's one of my co-founders, uh, who was already working with at-risk youth, we were having a conversation about what, what's missing with kids these days and um, we you know kind of backpedaled and said okay well it's not actually like sexual health education it's it's how to have a relationship whether that be a friendship or a romantic one you know we're especially for young men not modeling the best ways of how to do so right we're not modeling vulnerability we're not modeling uh sharing of uh, of feelings and stories of any sort of depth and substance right and um we see it manifest so much later in life where uh, one of the number one contributors to to men's health uh detriments as they age is social isolation right and so you can kind of trace that thread over the course of a man's life what was the conversation like with your best friend to actually instigate and say, you know, quit your job and jump on board with this? I think that Next Gen Men is also born on the backs of our friendship because as far as masculine friendships go, I think ours is pretty unique. Um, we've been through a lot of shit together. Um, we... Oh, well, I did flunk out of university. He almost flunked out of university. I went through a severe bout of depression. He unfortunately lost his 13-year-old brother to suicide. Um, you know, his mom wasn't always around. Um, I had relationships within my family as well that were challenging. And, you know, we shared that vulnerability and we talked through those things. And even amongst like our close group of guy friends, which is five of us, him and I, I'd say, are kind of even one step closer um, just because of the things that we did do to, to form that deep bond. And so in having that conversation with him, um, he saw it as an opportunity to kind of merge his work in public health and his passion really to um, intervene with young men. I think that after the loss of his brother, um, he really had a passion about uh, helping young men kind of fulfill their potential and not be lost. Um, and, uh, that was, that was kind of the basis of that conversation. And, and he had the, the means to kind of go and, and lead the youth program development. And at the time I was working at a startup, so I was kind of just doing it off the side of my desk and fancied myself entrepreneurial. Um, and then our, our third co-founder, um, has a, a master's degree in public health. He's really passionate about, uh, research and evaluation and, kind of, uh, I call him our resident geek and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to have him on the team because I, I can't stand that stuff. So it's great that he can do that and then I can do, do my own thing. But, uh, he had been doing sexual health education, um, in, uh, Vancouver, uh, cause he's a UBC grad and as well in Jamaica. And so he frontline saw as well how these, these, uh, relational social norm issues manifest in the world of, of sexual health. 
Now, I know that you do a lot of programs that impact or, or include school-aged boys or school-aged men. And um, what is a common conversation that you're in with these participants? I think the common conversation is what it means to be a man, right? Like nobody really has that conversation with young men. We just kind of assume it. And then we look at, we take a step back and we look at society and many of these young men don't have male role models at home often, right? And that could be, you know, whether it's actually a single parent household or the product of divorce and their dad's not really around that much anymore. Then we look at the early childhood education system. I don't even know what the percentage is, but it's a very skewed uh, female, right? So where are we giving these boys the role models of what it means to be a good man? It's not in media. It might not be your sports coach. You know, he might make you a good athlete, but does he make you a good person? So um, I think it's the first time these boys are actually asked, what does it mean to be a man? And given the space to reflect on that and feel that. Yeah, and the difference that we, like I, whenever I hear, oh, you're being a good boy versus man up, like those are two very different connotations that go along with the conversation. Absolutely, right? Like, um, and, it, and it, it shows exactly how that conversation can later go where, you know, I don't like to necessarily use the term toxic masculinity because I feel that uh, a lot of people think that therefore masculinity itself is toxic. But um, I would define the toxic masculinity as the suppression of anything less than, weaker than, feminine, right? right. Um, so to prove you're a man, you have to suppress all of those things and hyper masculinate yourself in, in these social circles when you're challenged to man up. Mm. Now, you know, social circles, great segue. I think that there's a lot of these men's groups or men's events that we're seeing, uh, I'll say toting the idea that like, we're here to build better men. And what's your opinion of this rise in, you know, men's communities and men's groups? I guess there's a couple different categories that it falls into. Um, I think the ones that I think uh, I'm most proud of and excited about are those with kind of like a pro-feminist lens, right? Where it's not a zero-sum us versus them. If, if they're gaining, then we're losing, right? So keeping that conversation about how we as men manifest and how we what role we play in our communities. And then there's another category where um, men are kind of looking introspectively at some of the struggles, you know, three out of four suicides are men. Men die on average five years earlier than women. And, um, men are the primary perpetrators of all forms of violence, right? Looking at those things and, and they say, okay, well, well as men, we need to work on ourselves. And it's more kind of like fluffy, like pat on the back and, and whatnot, but not really digging down and, and challenging those social, social norms. Um, I think you and I had a great conversation in the past about uh, kind of shadow shadow work and, and light work, right? And um, really unpacking some of those those reasons why um, those things are. And then on the the really bad toxic end of the spectrum, we have you know the men's rights activists, which which very much do see that as as zero sum and and um, 
you know, I'd say that those types of men are kind of confined to the quote unquote man box, right? Um, what men are allowed to be in society today. And we've had a conversation under feminism about women's identities and roles in society, um, but we've been missing that parallel conversation for men. And those who I think are stuck in that man box want to kind of refer, uh, revert rather to those more traditional norms, mm. right? So I, I kind of say that those are kind of the buckets that I see out there. And then, um, you know, I think it's important to meet men where they're at, not be too much one way or too much the other way, but kind of hold space for the understanding that we got to where we are somehow, some way. How did we do that? and have empathy for that and then unpack that and hopefully have an aspirational conversation about where we could go. Yeah. And one of the things that I often find missing, at least for, it, for me, when I get into these spaces is this experience of the intersectionality of identity. And so when we talk about what does it mean to be a man, um, I often think of, uh, you know, I was in a conversation with my buddy, our mutual friend, Ellison around, well, you know, a man, and the only difference between a man and a woman is that a woman can carry a baby. And I was like, actually a trans man can carry a child. And so what does it mean for, uh, to be a man if it's not defined, when it's not defined by genitalia and sexual organs? Um, and it's actually so much bigger than that. Um, and what I often find missing in conversations is the, notion that um, the gender roles that are at play, sexual orientation, uh, I often don't go to a men's event and see a trans person present at the event first or featured on stage. I often don't see someone who uh, of a different sexual orientation being profiled. And so it is still this like cisgendered straight experience of conversation. One of my biggest learnings about what it means to be a man came from a trans man. And literally it was the story of how as a woman, he checked his fingernails differently. He held his hand on his waist differently. So when he transitioned into a male, he had to learn to check his nails and hold his hand on his hip differently to be a man to pass yeah to exactly right and that to me was really the first time you know in in theory i i you know understood that gender is a performance right it's how we interact with the world um but that was really my wake-up call to that and i think in 2018 you know finally i hope knock on wood uh people understand that there is a difference between sex and gender Right. And then digging even deeper, there's a difference between gender identity and gender expression. Right. And then what are the what's, roots well, of those things? Pause. For those listening, they may not know the difference. So what's the difference between, as you understand it to be, the difference between gender identity and gender expression? Yeah. So not an expert here, but as I understand it, gender identity is internally really what you feel like, you know, what you, what, what, what feels closest to your heart, right? And then gender expression is literally how you dress, how you act, how you kind of put yourself out into the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, we see uh, people playing with gender expression a lot in the fashion industry, 
right? Where we see a lot of kind of masculine dressing for, um, for women. And then, you know, on the other side, we got RuPaul's Drag Race, right? So um, it's kind of coming into the forefront of the conversation, right? Yeah. My favorite quote from RuPaul, now that you mentioned RuPaul, is that we're all born naked, everything else is drag. And it just reminds me of like how um, our identity is a performance in some capacity. Yeah, and then taking that quote and then applying it to babies, right? The One of the strangest things that I think about is gender reveal parties. Yes. Blue or pink, right? It starts before this little person even comes into the world. We ascribe what we think that their lives are going to be like, right? We make so many assumptions. I also want to highlight the work that Next Gen Men is doing in organizations as well. So tell me a little bit about Equity Leaders. Yeah, so Equity Leaders is Next Gen Men's new social enterprise. Um, myself, you know, before I did nonprofit, I was working in startups and entrepreneurship. And so I think nonprofit and charity is very challenging work just in terms of the organizational kind of structure. Um, so I was really struggling with how do I take this concept of healthy masculinities, healthy relationships, and gender equity and create a, a product or a service that people would be willing to pay for. You know, what was the, the market gap? And what I identified was workplaces. Um, we see so many women's groups, similar to kind of the men's social groups, but women's groups in workplaces, young women in energy, women in supported environments, Sheet Geek, all these groups. And um, they're great for social support and mentorship. But if as industry and society, we're saying that that's what's going to solve gender inequity, then essentially we're saying, hey, ladies, you have a problem. Go talk about it amongst yourselves and solve it. How are we engaging leaders, which are still predominantly men, in these conversations around diversity, inclusion, and equality? And really leveraging some of the experience that we have, kind of having these conversations with boys age 12 to 18, uh, you know, our monthly discussion groups that we host as well, so adults, and adapting it for context and audience and bringing the conversation to the workplace. And so we do kind of one-off workshops and presentations, whether that be like unconscious bias, allyship, privilege. Um, but what I'm really excited about is this program that we created called Equity Focused Leadership, which I kind of started calling the missing MBA course on how to be a more equitable leader. And we take a group of leaders within an organization. Um, as of right now, we've done it primarily with male identified, but we're working on figuring out whether we can do mixed group or not, because really these are conversations that all leaders should be privy to. Um, and we ran them through a gamut of these types of conversations. And in their day to day, this was a technology company. They're, they're programmers, they're software developers. When are they thinking about equity? When are they thinking about diversity? When are they thinking about inclusion? Right? Mm -hmm. So really challenging and creating that space for that conversation and to, to ask questions and you know, model vulnerability and, and that leadership in that space. So yeah. I'm really excited about that work. Do you ever get pushback by um, groups being like, you shouldn't be the one hosting these conversations in the workplace? No. To be honest with you, like the greatest pushback um, is probably from the people who benefit from the status quo the most. But in terms of me as like, you know, cis, white, hetero, male doing the work, it's almost like a, thank God you're here, right? Like they're the people doing this work. And, and I'm not going to lay any claim to this. People laid the foundation for this work before me. I'm just walking that path, right? But they've been, you know, begging 
for white men to come to the table, right? And and like I said earlier about this conversation we've had about women's roles and identities, when we talk about gender, straight white men haven't really been at the table talking and advocating for themselves and, and saying, you know, this is my experience, this is what I'm going through. And, um, you know, I, I'm privileged to be at that table, um, listening to everyone else and chiming in where, where I can talk about some of the, the, the pressures that I've faced and the lived experiences that I've had. Yeah. But I think, you know, uh, the ratio of two ears, one mouth, definitely listen to people and their experiences more. Yeah. And I think it also goes to be said, like you as a straight white male, um, have a team of people around you and a board of people that have diverse gender orientation, gender expressions, gender identities, sexual orientations, and a strong uh, diversity in both corporate experience, public health experience, a research focus that I actually feel um, isn't just the guise of men talking to other men. It's actually like you're a voice for a lot of other people that are like, please get us into a boardroom that we don't have access to. We are directly reaping the benefits of the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity, right? Like, um, there was a panel that I was recently uh, on in um, in Calgary, and the, the title of the panel was Diversity in the Workforce, and it was me and three white women. And I said, we are not diverse enough to have this conversation, right? And so I asked the organizer and if I could, you know, find a fourth panelist, and um, I sought out to, it was a women leadership conference, and I sought out to find a woman of color. And also in my head, I'm like, oh crap, I'm going to totally tokenize someone for like their, you know, identity and bring them on here. So I totally, you know, wore that in my conversations. I met some brilliant women of color in Calgary. I have that network now that I can tap into. And the woman who ended up joining us on the panel said something brilliant. She said, diversity is an individual responsibility, not just a leadership one. You don't go into work and wear a diversity hat and then go home and take it off. If you live a diverse experience, you will be a more equitable leader, mm -hmm. right? If you seek out movies with subtitles and eat strange ethnic food and your, your friends are of different races and cultures, like that translates into the workplace. And similar to what you were saying, you know, my, my two co-founders, one of them is black from the Caribbean and the other one's uh, Filipino Chinese. And on our board, we have uh, different people. And, and, you know, specifically I sought out women to be on our board because uh, we are a primarily male organization serving a primarily male uh, population or our, at least our target population. And we don't want to have that echo chamber. I want people offering different perspectives in my corner. Jake, you're a great example of what it's like to um, be a part of the conversation. And also, I just want to acknowledge you for being such a strong listener. And I really hope that uh, those people who are listening that are like, I don't know where to begin, or I also want to be um, a support in the conversation, um, and acknowledging the fact that this work is by choice for us and other people, predominantly pe women of color, don't get that choice. It's like a requirement. It's their lived experience every single day. And so um, it's a privilege to be able to choose to be in the work. And I think it's the most important work that we can be doing right now to support um, 
the conversation around equality and equity. 100%. And I also want to acknowledge and thank you for stepping up to the plate and joining our board of directors when I asked you as well. Thanks. Um, all right, let's wrap this. What's making your heart beat faster, Jake? Oh, man, I, I thought of the Corker Co. I said to myself, if I was on Uncorked, what would I answer? And uh, I got the answer. We, we recently did a uh, next-gen men sock collaboration with a sock manufacturer in, in Calgary. And um, we, you know, we've been sending those socks out as fundraising and, and tokens of gratitude to our network. And uh, in Toronto, a city of over 4 million people, two people uh, recognized the socks. Um, one of them was wearing them and they had a conversation about next-gen men and healthy masculinities and um, that our socks are out there in the world and they're sparking conversations. That makes my heart beat faster. That's awesome. Uh, what's making my heart beat faster is um, I have been doing high-intensity aquasize. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have like the big blue waistband floaty? Not not at all. It's like a dance party in water and I'm really committed to always tr like trying new ways to move my body and this one is is like starting to become a strong foundational part of my workouts each week. Well, I went to lip service and you definitely can dance. <laughs> um, Jake, it's been a pleasure. For anyone listening, we'll include some of the links to both the authors and articles and um, Next Gen Men and Equity Leaders down below. So thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Cheers, thanks.